Good evening and welcome to this edition of Back On Report. My name is Fred Altvader and normally my co-host Carlos Torres opens the show, but tonight he is busy with the election and we will carry on. Speaking of the election, we hope you took the time to exercise your right to let your voice be heard and cast your ballot for your favorite slate of candidates today. We have a special show lined up for you tonight as we will feature interviews with the guests that have graciously given their time to speak with us. We will get to those in just a few minutes, but first let's do a quick review of what happened on the major golf tours around the world on our weekend backspin report. The PGA Tour was in Las Vegas for the Shriners Hospitals for Children Open. If you listen to the show regularly, you know how Carlos and I love to talk about the young, talented players that seem to constantly take the golf world by storm and win on the biggest stage. But this week, the Shriners Hospitals for Children Open was won by a grizzled veteran, plied his trade all around the world. Rod Pampling is 47 years old, and he's definitely on the back nine of his golfing career. Pampling outdueled one of the brightest young stars on the PGA Tour, Brooks Kepka, and former U.S. Open champion Lucas Glover for his third career title. Pampling turned professional in 1994 and played primarily in Australia and Asia until making his way to the U.S. in 2002. He lost his PGA Tour card in 2013 and has been playing the Web.com Tour, plus on other professional tours around the world. He regained his PGA Tour card via the Web.com Tour finals this year, and this win will give him exemption on the big tour nearly right up to his 50th birthday. Then he can jump onto the Champions Tour. Pampling has played in 224 events on the PGA Tour and has won $16 million. Not bad for a journeyman professional golfer. You just got to love it when the old guys still can show the young guys that they still have what it takes to get it done. The LPGA Tour was in Japan for the Toto Japan Classic where Shan Shan Fang won for the second consecutive week. Fan held the lead on Saturday night but didn't make her first birdie on Sunday until the ninth hole. She didn't feel she was striking the ball that well on the front nine and was not giving herself good birdie looks. But that all changed after the ninth and she rolled in birdies at 10 and 11. After a birdie on the 17th to put her up three shots, the six-time LPGA winner made things interesting with a double bogey on the 18th. Feng has been on fire since her bronze medal performance at the Olympics as she has yet to finish outside the top four in her last six events. She's finished fourth, fourth, runner-up, third, and now win-win. She has made over a million dollars in that six-week stretch and has moved to number eight in the Rolex ranking and number six in the race to the CME Globe. With just one event remaining, the Lorena Ochoa Invitational on the LPGA Tour schedule before the season-ending CME Globe Championship, Lydia Ko and Aria Jutanagarn are in a dead heat for the race to the CME Globe title. In the Rolex Player of the Year race, there's only a 14-point difference with Jutanagarn holding the edge right now. In the Vare Trophy scoring, Ko is at 69.611, which is first. Jutanagarn is 69.923, just three-tenths of a, of a stroke different. In the race to the CME Globe, Jutanagarn again leads. 
And then in the money title, Jutana Garn again is just slightly ahead of Co. Last week, Aria fired rounds of 68-68 to be near the lead, but a final round 74 moved her down to T10. Meanwhile, Lydia continued to struggle, finishing well down the leaderboard. After rounds of 74-71, she carved a final round 69 and moved up 10 spots to finish T43. Co has been struggling of late. Her last win came back in July at the Maryland Classic and has not finished inside the top 10 in her last five starts. In other LPGA Tour news, in a story that will not become official until tomorrow, WTOL-TV in Toledo is reporting that the 2021 Solheim Cup will be awarded to the Inverness Club in Toledo. Inverness Club has previously hosted four U.S. Opens, the 1973 U.S. Amateur, two U.S. Senior Opens, plus the PGA Championship twice. It is also scheduled to host the 2019 USGA Junior Amateur. W2L reports that the members of the Lancaster Club near Philadelphia have been notified that they did not receive the bid and Inverness has set a press conference for Wednesday afternoon with Stacy Lewis to be in attendance. Toledo has been a strong stop on the LPGA Tour with the Marathon Classic, formerly the Jamie Farr Toledo Classic. The 2017 Solheim will be contested in Des Moines, Iowa and the 2019 Solheim Cup will be held in Scotland on the PGA Centenary Course at the Glen Eagles Hotel in Perthshire. On the Champions Tour, Charles Schwab Cup leader Bernhard Langer returned to action and was only two shots behind the leaders after the first two rounds at the Dominion Charity Classic, but a final round 71 moved him down to a T6 finish. Tom Byron and Scott McCarran were tied for the lead at 10 under par heading into the final round on Sunday. Both shot matching three under par 69s to force a playoff. McCarran birdied the first extra hole for his second win on the Champions Tour this season. Only 36 golfers will advance to the final event of the year on the Champions Tour to be held this week at the Charles Schwab Cup Championship at Desert Mountain in Scottsdale, Arizona. Bernhard Langer still leads in the points list and should become the first man to win the Charles Schwab Cup for a third time. He's also been runner-up twice, so he's been pretty dominating over the last few years. McCarron jumped over Colin Montgomery for the second spot with Joe Durant and Miguel Angel Jimenez rounding out the top five. On the European Tour, Thorbjorn Olesen earned his fourth European Tour victory in the Turkish Airlines Open at the Regnum Carrier Golf and Spa Resort. He won over David Horsey and Hei Tong Lee last weekend. With many of the big names not traveling to Turkey for the first leg of the Race to Dubai final series, the European Tour next moves to South Africa for the Ned Bank Golf Challenge hosted by Gary Player before heading to Dubai for the Tour Championship. Henrik Stenson, Danny Willett, and Rory McIlroy hold the top three spots in the Race to Dubai, and odds are that one of these will collect the big check and hoist the trophy in Dubai in two weeks. Next up is the Par 5 News, which will be brief tonight so we can get right to the interviews. It's official. Tiger Woods will return to competitive golf at his Hero World Challenge in the Bahamas at the beginning of December. If you remember, he withdrew from the Turkish Airlines Open 
and the Safeway Classic earlier this fall. Olympic gold medal winner Enby Park had the cast on her injured hand removed, but she's not quite ready to start playing golf just yet. Alex Maselli wrote about Rory McIlroy's complaints about the European Tour membership being a requirement for qualification for the European Ryder Cup team, specifically the fact that Paul Casey was not eligible for the team because he gave up his European Tour membership last year. Roy feels the European team went into last year's Ryder Cup at Hazeltine with less than their best players because of the rule. Keith Pelley said he's willing to look at changing the rule in the future. Finally, it was confirmed last week that Matt Kuchar will indeed receive a new Cadillac Escalade for his hole-in-one at the WGC HSBC. He had been told that even though he made the shot, he would not receive the car because the hole measured under 200 yards and the insurance company would not cover the cost. After learning of the situation, Cadillac, a six-year title sponsor of the World Golf Championships and the official vehicle and umbrella sponsor of the entire World Golf Championships series through 2016, chose to award Kuchar with the Cadillac of his choice. Pretty good deal there. And now I'd like to bring you some interviews. You know, as we, we like to talk to interesting people, get new ideas, what's going on in golf. And, and I think we've done that uh, quite well with the interviews we have. Normally at this point in the show, Carlos and I discuss uh, a topic on the practice range. But since Carlos couldn't join us tonight, we're going to play these interviews instead. To begin, we have Andy Martinez, who has been a caddy on the PGA Tour for over 30 years. He was on Johnny Miller's bag for 12 years when Johnny was at the top of his game and spent 22 years with Tom Lehman. We sat and talked for over 30 minutes earlier this year, and this is just some of the highlights of that discussion about Jack Nicklaus, Tiger Woods, and some of the young guys in the professional game today. We are talking with Andy Martinez, longtime caddy on the PGA Tour. He has caddied for many of the great players over the years, has been there, done that, seen it all. Andy, welcome to the Back Nine Report. Yeah, thanks, Fred. Yeah, it's, it's a pleasure to be here. How many players have you caddied for over the years? Do you know? you ever keep count? I have not, but someone asked me that not long ago, and, and I was thinking, well, maybe 30 or 40, since I had some extended stints with, uh, with uh, the same player. But then I started thinking about this guy here and that guy there. And so now I'm saying, who knows, 50 maybe? You were telling me you've been caddied for a couple of weeks for Tom Weisskopf. I did. I did. I worked two tournaments for him in 1976, the Colonial and then the tournament in Charlotte. Yeah, the Kemper was called then. And uh, one other tournament uh, also at the Colonial later on in his career when he was, when he was just about done. Early in your career, when you were getting going, I think um, you came onto the radar as caring for a long time for uh, Johnny Miller. Yeah, I did. I did 12 years with Johnny Miller from 1970 through 1982. When was the first year that you started caddying? How did you make it to the PGA Tour? How did you start caddying? Well, I, I caddied um, a little, just a little. I wasn't a caddy, per se, at a club or anything like that. I was just uh, started golf when I was 15, and I won a junior club championship when I was 17, and the, the club pro there uh, asked me if I would caddy a couple of local events, and one of those uh, local events was a qualifier for uh, 
uh, an official tour event in October of 1968. It was called the Hague National Open. And my player didn't make it. He missed by a couple shots, my, my club guy, Pat Chartrand. But uh, I was able to pick up a job with Greer Jones, who I didn't really know who he was, but uh, it was his very first tournament after winning the tour school in the fall of 1968. Always wore the bucket hat. Yeah. Yes, yeah, he did. <laughs> he did, and he also uh, was NCAA champion in 1968. He did one year at San Jose State, then he went to Oklahoma State, and that's where he won the 1968 uh, NCAA championship. Then the tour school, and now I've got him in his very first event as a professional. That was really cool. You also, I believe, spent uh, quite a bit of time with Tom Lehman. Oh, yes, yeah, 22-plus years with, with Tom Lehman. And, wow, I've, I've seen some incredible golf with, with Tom Lehman. As a matter of fact, he's got the tournament record here. He shot four 67s, which was, it was off the charts. Jack even used that old quote that, uh, that Bobby Jones uh, used concerning him about uh, being Plays a game being, to which I'm not yes, familiar. Yes, exactly. And Jack used that to describe uh, Tom's golf that week. He won by, I think, about five shots. But, but that, that was one phenomenal display of golf. Well, you've been around a long time, and so speaking of let's talk a little bit about our host, uh, Jack Nicholas here this week. Uh, you've seen Jack play a lot of golf. And I think you told me in your mind, he, without question, is the greatest ever, bar none. You know, I, I did get a chance to see Hogan a little bit, and I saw Sam Snead a lot, but I never got to see Byron Nelson play, and, you know, and Bobby Jones, I never got to see him play. In the era that I've, I've worked, which uh, encompasses uh, the, the late 1960s going forward, uh, Jack Nicklaus has definitely got my vote as far as his, his consistency, his ability to uh, handle the highest pressure. To, to me, he was one of the greatest pressure putters ever. His, his ability to, to strike the ball, I mean, people don't really talk about that that much, but he was such a great driver of the golf ball. It wasn't too, too often that he put himself out of position after his tee ball. And if he, uh, a lot of times he would use a three wood if the hole didn't uh, didn't fit his eye, or, or even sometimes even a one iron, he could he could hammer a one iron. And I think uh, his length, you know, as, f as far as his consistency and accuracy and length, definitely one of the greatest uh, drivers of the ball ever. And you know, it's like they say, drive for show, putt for dough. Well, well, he definitely was a fantastic driver, great iron player, and a phenomenal pressure putter. I know it's like, shoot. He, and he took on the best of just about every generation. The longevity of his, of his career and his brilliance. You know, everybody talks about winning the Masters in, in uh, 1986. But uh, not too many people know that uh, in 1998, the year Mark O'Meara won the Masters, Jack was two strokes off the lead on the 12th tee, uh, the, final, the final round. You know, as well as in the longevity, he could have won as an amateur the 1960 U.S. Open. That's uh, that kind of consistency. And uh, he had five children, a uh, family man, and, and all that, and all the other things that he did, and uh, all the requests uh, on his time. Uh, I, I told Jack one, one time at the Masters, it might have been that 98 Masters, I said, yeah, Tiger's pretty good, Jack, but he's not in your league. It's 
because he didn't he didn't have to deal with all those children that you had. You know, he, he laughed at that, but, but uh, yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about Tiger. Um, you've seen him play a lot. You've been in groups with him. Yeah. What uh, what stands out? What when you think of Tiger Woods on the golf course, what do you think about? Uh, in some ways, he reminded me of Hogan in, in that uh, the ability to put on the blinders, and there was really nothing that was happening except for, for his golf. You know, as, as far as who the competition was or what the score was, who was here or there, and uh, that was never a concern for him. I think his father did a really great job of training him to, uh, to be in the zone, to stay in, to to stay in the moment and do your own thing, doing your own business and always and always trust what you're doing. He was, uh, he was uh, incredibly uh, talented, skilled at, at that. His, uh, his short game, I'm not sure that I could ever remember any single guy who had a short game that was better than Tiger's. It seemed like he could get it up and down from anywhere. So, you know, I used to say on a certain occasion, well, I didn't have my A game today. Well, that's, that's how he could win so many tournaments when he was not really at his tip top striking the ball but Tom Lehman mentioned this and I didn't think about this that much but I think Tom was right concerning Tiger that uh, his he was a phenomenal iron player as far as his distance control and how many great iron shots that he hit how many great clutch iron shots he hit and uh, Tiger was uh, way up there as far as that ability I think the, the one weakness that Tiger had was that he was kind of scattershot with his uh, his tee ball at times, sometimes that driver was uh, got out of control. See, that's always been my point of contention with Tiger. Mm -hmm. He had the best short game ever. Maybe Phil, you know, but Tiger's was as uh, good as anybody ever. Once he got to 160, 170 yards, but why wouldn't he just? I know Nike was paying him a bunch of money to hit that driver, but you know, hit some three woods, get the ball in the fairway. And use that. Use your irons. Use your short game. I can never understand that. Well, I, I think he did. I think he did some of that. I think through the years he made some adjustments, uh, as as far as that. But, but that's the that's the one thing about about golf is uh, most of the great players, almost across the board. If you think about who the great players were, just about all of them were great drivers of the golf ball. They too. had that length. You know, it's it's important. It is it is so important. I mean, if you if you're a great driver, you can play. Just about anywhere, but uh, if if you're not, there there's certain places that can be a nightmare for you. No matter how good you are, and how good your attitude is, and no matter how good your short game is. Well, let's transition. Then uh, we've talked about Jack. We've talked about uh, Tiger. Let's transition to this bunch of young guys that we've got right now: mm -hmm. Jordan Spieth, Jason Day, Rory McIlroy, and then you still got Dustin Johnson. You've still got. Some other guys that are that are knocking on the door all the time. It seems like. What are your thoughts about these guys? Well, there's there is a, a, a flux of, of great great players right now. Right now, I think we're uh, we're uh, very fortunate right now with with the guys who are up at the top of the game. Is uh, like this this guy Jason Day, one of the classiest young guys I've ever seen. And this is a game where there uh, there are a lot of classy people. And in all the years I, I've been out. On tour, I'll tell you, I've I've never seen a young fellow that that has his attitude and his humility about it, and his and his uh, feet on the ground, uh, earnestness about what he's doing. And I think uh, I like listening to him being interviewed. 
He says all the right things, and, and he's not worried about being politically correct. He's just being himself. He's a, he's a wonderful, wonderful young man. And Going to Jordan Spieth, now this guy is, uh, it's yet to be seen exactly who this, who this guy is, but from the early results that are in, this guy is. He could uh, challenge t uh, Tiger with the best short he's, game. Oh, yes, he, yes, he could, and, and he's on track to do who knows, maybe whatever, whatever he wants to do, as long as he's motivated and all that. And he's a classy guy, too. We have a lot of classy young guys out there. Uh, Rory, I rem remember the first time I saw him was at, uh, at Carnoustie a while back. He was a teenager then. That's the first time I'd ever seen him. I'd heard a little bit about him. But you know, certain guys have an aura. And I could kind of feel that aura about this guy, that, that he, wasn't, he wasn't out there, even though he was a teenager. He wasn't really out there playing in the Open Championship with stars in his eyes, looking around and all that. He knew that he was where he belonged, and he knew that he was where he was going to be successful. I could tell that. I could, I could feel that about that. You can feel that about, about certain guys you know, throughout the years. You know, maybe the guys are peaking a little younger, but still, I know there are plenty of guys who, can, who, go, who yeah. can play great golf from the ages of uh, 35 to 45. I mean, these guys are making so much money nowadays, I don't think they should even be thinking about money, any of them, ever. Well, Andy, I want to thank you so much uh, for taking time to come in here and talking to us today. I, I've enjoyed it immensely. Next up is Mary Ann Thomas, who has created a new process called A Positive Mind to improve your mindset to play better golf and help your personal life as well. Through years of study and neuroscience research, she has discovered that emotions trigger thought and are responsible for how we react to different situations in our lives. To improve your life and your golf game, you must improve your emotional attachment. We want to welcome Mary Ann Thomas to the Back Nine Report. Mary Ann believes a positive mind can help everyone achieve a better golf game and life. She has developed a system for adults as well as junior golfers to overcome negative thoughts or problems in our golf game and achieve better results. Mary Ann, welcome to the Back Nine Report. Thanks so much, Fred. I appreciate being here. You know, I want to um, share one piece of my process right from the get-go and give your listeners a tip on how to have a better golf game in life right now. There is a large body of research on positivity. And one technique has been used in, oh gosh, hundreds of research papers. It's a very simple little technique. If they'll start employing it right now, today, things will get better for them. Their golf game, their life, their relationships. And if their relationships improve, they're going to be able to play more golf. So it's kind of a plus-plus thing. But it's a very simple little technique of noting three good things a day. Um, it, it's amazing. This little tiny technique does so much for us. The research is astounding. So I want to kick off by just appreciating you and what you're doing. I've read over so many of your articles and, and uh, listened to some of your interviews. You work so hard for golfers. Um, I know they appreciate it, and you probably don't hear enough of that, so I wanted to tell you that to start with. Well, we certainly appreciate that. Uh, we uh, 
Carlos, my co-host, and I, uh, we've been doing this for a few years now, and, and uh, we just love doing it. We, we get the chance to talk to very interesting people like yourself and uh, hear different takes on uh, in the golf business. And, and uh, there's just it's, there's so many things. And, and as you mentioned, in your study and in your work, that golf mirrors life so much. And I found mm-hmm. that over my life that, you know, the old saying, a river runs through it, that movie title. Well, in mm-hmm. mine, it's, it's, it's golf runs through it. it. It's run through my whole life. So before we get started in, in talking more, uh, I want to find out a little bit about your background. How did, how did you get started thinking and, and working with golfers? Well, my husband uh, was Bob Thomas. He was a uh, best-selling golf author. He passed away last year after a very long illness. Um, before that, I was a counselor for a couple of decades. This is such an interesting twist of life, Fred. You'll be so surprised. Your readers, listeners will be so surprised to hear this. Um, in order to help Bob recover from a stroke 10 years ago with that kicked off his, his bad decade. He had several medical events in that decade. Um, but the first was a stroke and to help him recover. I got into neuroscience research and lo and behold, I found out that in my counseling practice uh, over the last few decades, I had developed techniques that made use of the new neuroscience research, which shows that it's emotion and not thought that wires our brains and and, uh, triggers our automatic thought processes. And I had developed techniques that uh, changed emotion, allowed people to shift their emotions from away from uh, troubling feelings to feelings they wanted to have and, and did it instantly. And I found out that I was one of the first people who had uh, any applications of the new neuroscience research. Um, so I, you know, this was stunning for me to find this out. And uh, everything in my life from the moment I met my husband uh, over 30 years ago has to do with golf. And in the end, golf gave me a gift as it did him so many times in his life. He really felt that very keenly. Uh, that golf saved his life. His sec- the second book that he wrote uh, is called Golf Gave Me Something to Love. It was almost made into a movie. Bob grew up uh, in, a, in an abused home. His sister died from the abuse. Bob had a good life because of golf. And I know that your listeners, your readers understand this. Golf provides us with so many gifts, it's uh, with a place of happiness for my husband as a child. That was the only place of happiness he had. So that's how I, uh, you know, I developed my techniques as a counselor. They came into being, finding their way to match up with the neuroscience research in this unique way through golf. Golf gives us all so many gifts. So that's how it happened. Uh, by the way, my husband's first book was about Ben Hogan. Uh, Hogan was his hero, and I'll give your uh, I'll give your listeners and your readers one tip from that book, which um, I know many of Bob's fans still follow. And this was Hogan's. It was his philosophy of life: if you don't quit, you win. And I follow that myself. The first time I heard that from Bob's lips, I said, "You know what? I'm going to live that way." And and we did. Yeah, that's that is a great story. Um, to follow along with that, uh, I have read uh, Bob's book, uh, Ben Hogan's Secret, 
uh, blends fiction and truth to weave a, an enjoyable tale. Of course, Hogan was always uh, asked and bugged and, and uh, cornered about his secret, but never really said mm-hmm. anything about it. And uh, so, yes, uh, he does a really nice job with that. Uh, he would be. He would. He would have been so happy to hear that. You mentioned earlier that one of the things you talk about is three uh, positive things a day to think about. Uh, mm-hmm. I know that another section probably is uh, when you find yourself in a negative situation, turn that around to a positive. So, like mm-hmm. if I'm saying uh, I'm standing on the tee and there's a water hazard over to the right, and my mind's saying uh, don't hit it in the water hazard, that's negative. The, the mind does not understand negative. All it hears is water, and so your ball mm-hmm. is drawn to the water. So you want to turn around that around to a positive. So I focus on uh, I want to hit this spot on the green, or I, you know, mm-hmm. I, I want to hit it here, um, mm-hmm. not where you don't want to hit. It's where you want to focus on where you. Is, is this part of what your thinking is? Well, that that's the um, that's the conventional thinking. That is the thinking before the new neuroscience research is okay. change your, you change your thought, your thoughts, and then you'll change your feelings, and it works. You use it effectively. It does work. Um, what the new neuroscience research has found is that it's emotion that actually causes that thought pattern to be wired into our brains to begin with. And, so and the, emotion the, native, is, the emotion is fear? So is that what you're saying, yes. that you want to overcome? Okay. Yeah, or I can tell you the big one, and, and most things are an offshoot of this one feeling that we've done something wrong. If you can get rid of that, if you can reset that, if you can change your belief that you're ever doing anything wrong on the golf course, you will have a, will have an amazing impact on your golf game. And I'll give you let me give you the rundown of what happens when you hit a bad shot. You may not be aware of this, but the first thing you're thinking is, I've done something wrong. It's, this is bad, this is wrong, uh-oh, now I feel negative, uh-oh, that's wrong too. You go down a rabbit hole, and it chews up time, it puts you in a, a doubtful state, and things get worse after that. If you can change that belief that you've done something wrong, you'll, you'll, you won't go down the rabbit hole anymore. One of the things that uh, the technique I developed does that changes emotions, shifts emotions. I teach my students with the use of this tool, um, they're able to change the feeling immediately. So instead of thinking about the thoughts and going having to go through a thought process, they'll clue in on whatever feeling they're having. So it might be a feeling of fear, might be anxiety, might be pressure, might be frustration, might be anger. Um, I get them to shift that feeling, and it'll shift the thoughts that go with it automatically. It's a quicker way of doing what you described. With the research, there are quicker ways of doing things, and going through the emotions is a quicker way. So that way they don't waste time. They recover from the shock more quickly and and actually usually improve on the shock. Marianne Thomas has a better way to get your mind in a positive frame of light, and it involves the emotion, what you are feeling. You can turn this around quicker. She has learned this through neuroscience over the years. Can you give us the result of 
can you give us an idea or uh, one of the positive results that you have seen in the program, someone you have worked with, just real briefly? Sure. We just um, did a uh, conducted a pilot program with the AJGA for juniors. We're going to actually uh, introduce the techniques that I've developed. Um, they've now been uh, beta tested so that we have a uh, a year's experience with golfers, adapting them from a counseling program uh, to, to athletics, starting with golf. And we started with juniors. And um, the main reason why is that we know we have something really special here. Uh, one of the first applications of a new body of work, it's um, just a quirk of fate that that has happened. And we feel a responsibility to introduce it in, in a way that honors uh, the game and also the people that are going to be using it and the technique itself. So we started with juniors. We thought that juniors would uh, provide that sense of honor. You can see that in them in the first tee program and the kids that we teach. Fred, you wouldn't believe these kids. They're like they embody what my husband believed in golf. They get on each other if they throw trash on the golf course. They don't like it if someone boos another kid. They, they step in and say something about it. These kids are really learning what this game is really all about, and that's uh, part of the youth program that has cropped up in golf. So we decided that we would start with juniors, and uh, we uh, asked the AJGA if we can uh, partner with them. They wanted to do a pilot program. Um, it was a 21-day program, three weeks leading up to a tournament. The first results were subjective. Um, the, with, with my techniques, the juniors were all reporting greater confidence. They were sending in comments saying that um, when they hit a bad shot, it didn't bother them as much. They recovered quicker. Um, they weren't so bothered by what people were saying on the course or by the talking that was going on. They felt more focused. Confidence was the biggest. That was the thing they kept uh, repeating, is that they felt more confident, more optimistic. Um, and, and the second thing they kept repeating is that they didn't uh, – things that happened to them on the course just didn't, didn't bother them quite as much as, as, as they had been. So that's the subjective comments started in that vein, and it grew more and more powerful and stronger over the three weeks. And then at the end of the uh, three weeks, we had our tournament. Uh, we had 14 uh, boys and girls in our, in our uh, pilot, seven girls, seven boys. Five of the seven boys placed in the top 13 spots. And this is the thing that, that was really startling in the results. They all played steady golf. They improved on their scores. Uh, the second and third rounds were better than the first round for most of them. And that's a kind of an unheard of thing for juniors in a tournament. They usually, it goes the other way. And these kids played steady golf, had more emotional regulation, and that's just with 21 days. And, you know, I can't take all of the credit for that. Uh, my techniques employ and apply the new neuroscience research. This I want your readers and your listeners to understand that this is the result. Achievements like that are the result of understanding how the brain works, that it is emotion 
that creates the neural pathways that trigger thought. If you go in through the emotions, if you reset your emotions, if you shift your emotions, you're automatically shifting your thoughts. It's a quicker way of mental discipline, not having to use mental discipline at all. You know, Fred, most of the time, mental discipline really just puts more pressure on people not to be negative. So they're really, it's counterproductive. They're really um, telling their emotions, telling themselves to feel bad about themselves. Anytime you do that, you're not really getting anywhere. You have to use mental discipline to overcome what you just did emotionally. So going into the emotions, this is a whole new world. It's a quicker way of affecting thoughts. I'm talking with Marianne Thomas, a new program, Positive Mind. Where can we find your information, learn more about you, and uh, get a hold of your program, find out more about it, Marianne? We have a landing page. It's a positivemind.info. A positivemind.info. Mary Ann, thanks again so much for taking a few minutes to talk with us today. We will definitely look for this. Uh, every golfer knows uh, they hit a bad shot, then the next thing they hit, they get mad, they hit another bad shot, and, you know, they don't mm-hmm. enjoy the golf, and that's what's turning people away from the game. We want to bring people back, and we want them to enjoy it. This is one way that uh, we can help them do that. They can start right now by noting three good things a day, and I can tell you they will be uh, just beginning to employ this new neuroscience research and approach. Go in through the emotions, noting three good things a day. Your emotions come into play, and they'll all be they'll all be favorable ones, ones that you like, and that will start changing your thought patterns. They can start using this new work right now today. Three good things a day. Write it down. Don't just think it. Write it down. Marianne Thomas, a positive mind dot info. Thank you, Marianne. Thank you, Fred. Appreciate it a lot. We talked with Amy Lillibridge, who is the Director of Annual Giving and Alumni Relations for the Evans Scholarship Foundation. Amy is a native of Toledo, Ohio, and has pursued a career in the golf business. She started out as a caddy, earning an Evans Scholarship, and even caddied for a time on the LPGA Tour. She tells us about the Evans Scholars Program, where they've been and where they're going. It's a great program for young caddies who want to try and earn a scholarship to college. Everything is paid, books, tuition, room and board. If you're not familiar with the Evans Scholars Program, I urge you to get involved, to find out, go to their website, check it out. Here's Amy. We are here at the Toledo Country Club with the annual Evans Scholars outing. And we're talking with Amy Lillibridge, who is with the Western Golf Association, the Evans Scholars Foundation. And your title is? Director of Annual Giving and Alumni Relations. So that means you go out and twist guys' arms to uh, get in their pocketbook a little bit. That's a fancy title for that, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Amy, you've been with Evans Scholars for about seven years, I believe. That's correct, and very fortunate that I am also an Evans Scholar alum, and uh, so it's great to be working at a foundation that, that I am so passionate about myself. I think we've talked in the past, and last year, last school year, Evan Scholars had 910 students in schools around the United States under full scholarship, and in 2016-2017 school year, you've upped that to 935. 
yes we're we've been very fortunate through the support of our car club members across the country and events like today and that we're headed in the right direction and we're growing the program nine hundred thirty five in school this fall at twenty different universities across the country with a plan to grow the program to have a thousand scholars in school by the year twenty twenty it's been a really exciting time for us so one of the purposes of this outing here today is to raise money and raise the awareness with alumni and with supporters of Evan scholars that you need those contributions uh, what does it take to keep nine hundred thirty five kids in school today it, we have a tuition bill of $17.6 million annually, and that number just keeps going up, obviously, with the increase in scholarships, but also college tuition, uh, as everyone knows, uh, is continuing to rise. So, um, again, that, that's where the support of, of our donors really becomes important. You were telling me also today that you're building some new houses, you're going into some schools that you haven't been in before, I think maybe Penn State, maybe Kansas. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, we're very excited. Uh, we've had scholars in the past, in fact, had a scholarship chapter at the University of Kansas back uh, about 30 years ago. And unfortunately, caddy programs in, in Kansas uh, are not as strong as they used to be. Uh, but we've been able to revive that and revive our, a partnership with the University of Kansas. So we have 11 Evan Scholars in school at the University of Kansas this year with plans to hopefully have a scholarship house back there again in the next few years. Uh, Penn State as well, we've really had a great opportunity to grow the program in, in the East and in states like Pennsylvania, New York, Massachusetts, uh, and all the way down into DC, Maryland. Um, and we're seeing some nice success there and, and are excited to be at Penn State and really see that as kind of a gateway for the program to, to the East Coast. Amy, you're a young woman and, and found out early that you liked the game of golf. You got introduced to it by your father. Uh, you became a caddy. Not a traditional young woman's type job, but you found a lot of success doing different jobs in golf and it all stemmed from being a, a, a caddy and being an Evan Scholar and coming up through the program. Caddying is really what uh, solidified my interest in the sport and, and really got me hooked. I was very fortunate to spend uh, so many years caddying for the great members out at the Inverness Club and uh, the club was so great to me and the, and the scholarship was certainly a, a tremendous gift. Um, and I've worked hard to try to stay involved in the game and, and also give back to uh, a sport and, and a program that's been so wonderful to me. And along that vein, you've actually started a program, Evan Scholars has a program going in Chicago that focuses on young women and getting them involved. We have. Uh, this was our fifth summer for our WGA Caddy Academy program. And we found that one of the, one of the biggest challenges in, in getting girls involved in, in caddying is geography and gender. Only 2% of caddies nationwide are, are young women. So we've tried to change that through our Caddy Academy. It's a high school program designed for high school girls entering their sophomore year of high school. They come from all across the country. I believe we had 11 states represented uh, in this year's contingent of 80 young women that participate in this program in Chicago. So we literally bring everyone to Chicago each summer for a seven-week program 
teach them how to caddy most of the girls have never been on a golf course before so do both in class on course training with with the girls and then the hope being that they return for three summers and then are out then are eligible to apply for the Evans scholarship but the it, it's been a, a really impactful program we've had we have 17 young women in school right now that are graduates of the Caddy Academy and are looking to continue to grow that program. The, all, all of these young women entering the program, the average GPA is 3.8. The average household income is right around $25,000. So the need is there. Uh, they're bright girls and we're really excited to be able to introduce them to, to the game of golf and caddying and, and also hopefully help them through college. So we want our listeners to understand this program is open to any young person. If you have a club in your area that has a caddy program and supports the Evans Scholars, your child can become a caddy if they have the grades, if they have the economic need, and if your club has a program, you could possibly earn a full scholarship, tuition, room, board, everything at a state-funded uh, school. That's correct. And if you don't live near a club, there, there's opportunities through programs like the Caddy Academy to, to be able to caddy at. So yes, we're, we're trying to break down those geographical barriers and it, it's truly an amazing job for, for a young person uh, to be able to build relationships on the golf course, interact with adults, just the skills that you learn caddying um, really help you along the rest of your life. And you're on a good work ethic, and that falls over. You mentioned GPA a minute ago, and I know uh, in the meeting tonight it was recognized that Ohio State was one of the top GPAs in the nation. The Ohio State House that has 72 Evans Scholars in it had a GPA of what for 2015-2016? Average GPA in the House was 3.54 across the board and and Ohio State uh, won our annual scholarship trophy, the James E. Moore Scholarship Trophy, which is awarded to the chapter with the highest uh, combined GPA. They tied Northwestern uh, at 3.54, so they're sharing that scholarship trophy this year. Uh, So for our listeners, if you have an Evans Scholars program in your area or want to get one going, Contact Amy Lillibridge in the Western Golf Association's offices. Evan Scholars Foundation is, is located there. They oversee the program. Your email is? Lillibridge, L-I-L-L-I, bridge, at W-G-A-E-S-F dot org. The website is W-G-A-E-S-F dot org also. Log on, take a look at it. It's a great, great program. Uh, we support the Evans Scholars 100%. And Amy, you're a wonderful story for coming through it. Just um, uh, good luck to you going forward. Thank you so much, Fred. Thanks for your support of the program. And finally, we want to end the show tonight with a chat I had with Robert Kraft. I recently made a trip to southern Alabama and got to spend some time in Gulf Shores. If you've ever spent time in Gulf Shores, you know about the wonderful beaches along the Gulf of Mexico, fantastic food, and laid-back atmosphere that surrounds the area. While there, I had the opportunity to meet Robert Kraft. He is currently the mayor of Gulf Shores and is responsible for having the foresight to bring more golf to the area back in the 1980s. 
He told a wonderful story that involved his father, Arnold Palmer, and a sewer line. We originally aired this on October 18th, but this is one of my favorite stories, and I hope you enjoy this replay. We are so happy this evening to be talking with Robert Kraft in Gulf Shores, Alabama. And I don't know if you've ever been to this area or not, but it's absolutely gorgeous. I was here several years ago, fell in love with the area, had a chance to come back this weekend, and am so happy to be able to meet really one of the people that is responsible for turning Gulf Shores into a sleepy little South Alabama community into a major golf community. Mr. Kraft, thank you so much for talking to us. Oh, you're welcome. Glad to be here. You were telling us a unique story about how you and your dad bring golf to the area. Dad saw a vision maybe to move here from the Fort Myers, Florida area. He was a, a, a corn and soybean farmer. When you graduated from Auburn, you decided you wanted to be in the sod business and you grew uh, a sod on the farm, uh, 800 acres that you had out there. And you saw a vision that you needed a golf course, but you didn't have any money and you didn't have any way to get it done and the city wouldn't put a sewer line out there for you. That's correct. We, we, we recognized an opportunity. Gulf Shores has forever been a summer vacation destination. And it was obvious we had a lot of condominiums under construction, a lot of resort homes that were rented out. But there was it was basically a Memorial Day to Labor Day type of thing, and then it was over. Well, what better, what way could we expand the seasons? Well, golf had been used in a lot of communities, Myrtle Beach being a pretty good example of how golf was used to expand the season beyond a summer tourist season using already the inventory that was already there in rental homes. And, and we needed more expand an expanded season for all of our businesses that were trying to survive here. So golf was the perfect answer. So you had the 800 acres, but it was north of uh, town quite a ways, and there was no city services out there and you went to the city council to see about getting a sewer line and they were just excited about doing that for you yeah not exactly in the <laughs> beginning when we started out we were going to build just a golf course and develop the homes around it but we did not have sewer lines under the intercoastal waterway to get to us which was a couple of million dollar expense to get there and when pitching it to the city council in order for us to do this they needed to bring the sewer and water to our front door and they declined. They would not do it. And so we had a real dilemma. We couldn't, we couldn't move forward without sewer. So your next step was to hire a consultant to come in and do a feasibility study about building a golf course out there. And he told you one of your solutions would be? Well, he told us we needed a marketing accelerator. Well, I did not understand what a marketing accelerator actually was. And he explained it would be either a very sophisticated, well-funding marketing budget or get a signature architect that had a name that would give you instant credibility. And your signature name that you thought was the guy to get happened to be? Arnold Palmer. So how did you get Arnold Palmer to come up here to build a golf course? We, uh, we, we found that he had just started a golf course management company and that he also had course design and course construction and we were needing a lock and key job. So I was able to coordinate and find Ed Binion, who was the president of Palmer Course Management in his very first beginning. He did not have any golf courses under contract and suggested that we were a lock and key need for Arnold. And uh, he invited us to come down to the Bay Hill Classic and pitch our story to Arnold. So you decided to go down there. You asked your dad about it, and your dad said, 
you got to be kidding me. There's no way Arnold Palmer's coming to Gulf Shores, Alabama. But when you ask your dad to go along with you down to talk to Mr. Palmer about the project, he said, I'm not going to go down there and, and ruin my good name. <laughs> Waste my time. <laughs> you went anyhow, and you took an expert with you, and you met with Arnold and his team. I did. Actually, we met with Arnold and the head of his management company and his course design company and his construction company and had a gentleman with him named Mark McCormick. And at that point in time, and this is in 85, and I did not at that time know who Mark McCormick was, but I did finally understand International Management Group and their relationship to Arnold and golf. How did you get Arnold to come up here from that discussion? Mark McCormick grew up in Cleveland and spent his summers vacationing on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. And he was well aware of the opportunities on our coastal area here of the, the central Gulf Coast and really thought that this was something that had merit. And we were trying to get them to come up here and at least look at us to be the very first golf course that would be managed, designed, and built all by Palmer Companies. They didn't have any at that time. So Arnold did, the date was set, Arnold jumped in a plane, came over, got out of the plane, and met your father. Interesting opportunity there. My father was a lot like Arnold. He was a self-made man. Hitch up your pants and make it happen. And he, didn't, he wasn't that concerned about looking good doing it. He was just worried about results. And that's the way Arnold played golf. He didn't have the, the most beautiful, perfect swing, but he was going to get the ball in the hole. And my father had that similar philosophy about life and about business. We could figure this out. My father had no formal education, but he was a common sense guy, hard work, and understood how to make things happen and was determined to not fail. You borrowed a couple golf carts from the local golf course, the only one in the era, Gulf Shores Golf Club at the time. You brought Arnold out to the site. You jumped in the carts. Your father and Arnold got in one cart, and there you could see they were talking and yakking and looking around. All of a sudden, they made a left turn, went over to the sod farm. Then what happened next? Well, we were actually harvesting sod in the area adjacent to where we wanted to build the golf course, and I had all of these photographers and, and all of our, our mayor and all of our local folks from town to follow Arnold around and go look at the golf course. And their golf cart, as you mentioned, veered off to the left, and the next thing I know, they're over looking at the sod harvester and within a couple of minutes Arnold and my father on the back of the sod harvester stacking sod and I got this whole entourage of golf folks wanting to go look at the golf course. Arnold came before he left he said we'll be back we're gonna build this golf course for you. So you then went back to the city council and said I told him that uh, it changed my story instead of we'll build a golf course if you run sewer to us and they said no I said, we've got a different philosophy. If you'll run sewer and water to our front door, we will bring Arnold Palmer to town to design a golf course and we'll change the way the world looks at Gulf Shores related to golf forever. You got your sewer line. Arnold Palmer built 18 holes. You later added a second 18-hole golf course. There's the Peninsula Golf Course. There's uh, Kiva Dunes now. There's Lost Key. Uh, this is a golf mecca down here. We were able to develop with, with the help with this plan of the golf, golf courses you mentioned, a Gulf Shores Golf Association. Again, we went to Myrtle Beach and watched how they had been successful collectively organizing and marketing accommodations and golf together. And we came back and copied that. You, you always copy the best, and they were, at our, in our area, the best at, at marketing golf and putting together golf vacation opportunities. We created a Gulf Shores Golf Association under that same formula 
to create golf uh, awareness in Gulf Shores? So this was in the mid to late 80s. I think the first golf course uh, opened in uh, 1987. Can you give us an idea of the economic impact, maybe on an annual basis, uh, that golf means to this area? Well, I'll give you an example. The best one that I can tell you is our marketing budget as a community. At the time we started the golf courses and started about golf course management and operations, we had all of our marketing was done through our Chamber of Commerce, and they had about a $350,000 a year marketing budget for all tourism in Gulf Shores. After we formed the golf course operation and with the help of Herb Malone, who's the head of our Gulf Shores Orange Beach Tourism, who was at that time the head of the Chamber of Commerce, we established a 2% lodging tax and through that dedicated all that money to marketing and advertising for our whole area, which included golf and the shoulder season opportunities as well as our summer. And today, with that 2% lodging tax, our marketing budget's over $9 million. We've been talking about Arnold Palmer, of course, with his death uh, and all the things that he's been known for. You know, we talked about his philanthropy with the hospitals uh, in Central Florida and, and all the good things that he's done over the years. But the economic impact that he helped bring to this Gulf Shores area is, has amounted to thousands of jobs, a, a, a vibrant economy, and, and tremendous tourism business here in southern Alabama. Correct. And it is... It really was the beginning of a, the change of our of our destination, and we have since then become almost year-round, and we have become diversified, and we've got a lot of different elements of tourism. But if you look back in time, the single one of the single visit, bi biggest elements related to that was the formulation of this Gulf Coast Orange Beach tourism and the implementation of, implementation of a lodging tax and a sophisticated marketing budget that was begun because of the Golf Association, which was begun because we had a name signature that everybody respected. Yeah, I think that's an outstanding story. And uh, Mr. Kraft, thank you again so much for taking a few minutes to talk to us. You're more than welcome. That wraps up another episode of the Back Nine Report. As always, we hope you enjoy the great game of golf and get out there and play whenever you get a chance. Until next week, happy golfing, everyone.